Welcome, Savvy Investor, to Skyline Views. All right, welcome to another episode of Skyline Views. I'm Chris Mills. My guest today is Dave Foster, a degreed accountant and serial real estate investor. Dave is a qualified intermediary and consultant who shares his tax-saving strategies with investors like you who want to maximize their returns. Dave, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here with you today. Absolutely. So let's start by uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself and your business. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate the, the amazing bio there. Every time I hear it, it just makes me feel old, <laughs> but that's okay. They're, I'm getting credit for longevity, I guess. Um, yeah, I would say if there's two passions in my life, they kind of come through in that description. I absolutely love real estate. And I never met a real estate deal that I didn't want to play around with. So I'm kind of a deal junkie that way. But by the same token, I also never met a tax that I like. So for me, the game of real estate has been on both ends. I love to find the right deals, to buy them, create them, manufacture them. But I also love to design and strategically place myself and my clients so that the back end is as least painful as possible, which means more dollars stay in your pocket. And that's why the 1031 exchange has been such a wonderful tool for me to use for myself and for my clients over the years. So it's kind of been a match made in heaven. Fits me right where I'm at. Awesome, awesome. Let's uh, briefly recap the 1031 exchange and that timeline for folks, and then we'll move on into the construction part. Right. Well, the, the 1031 exchange is, a lot of folks call it a loophole, but honestly, it's been around since 1920. It was one of the original parts of the tax code. Now, the philosophy back then was, and, and you can see this in a bunch of the Supreme Court case rulings early on, the philosophy was that we're going to have taxes because we have to pay for certain things as a nation but nobody should pay more tax than they have to. In other words, taxes were involuntary, not voluntary, and they created a whole framework to allow certain things to legally avoid tax. And the sale and purchase of investment real estate was one of those things. We were just coming out of the agrarian age into the industrial age. And so a lot of farmers and factory owners had lots of assets, but very little cash. And if they wanted to grow, they would sell an asset. And if they had to pay tax on that, the tax would cripple them so that they wouldn't be able to grow. So that was why Section 1031 was first put into place, because it allows investors to sell investment real estate and then buy investment real estate using a process and get to indefinitely defer paying that tax on the profit or depreciation recapture that they normally would have. So it was an incentivization to grow. It was a, an engine to help our economy grow. And so very, very key, key component. And of course, now we're seeing it everywhere. 
uh, anybody that wants to go into real estate and stay there who's wanting to grow is using 1031 exchanges because it's letting them take those tax dollars and put them to work for themselves. So they're generating return, which is what Albert Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. I'm making money on the government's money. And part of what I care is tax. So I'm making money on the government's money and then making money on the money that the government's money is making. And now I confuse myself. But <laughs> that's the 1031 exchange. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good. So let's talk about there's the timeline, right? From sale, you've got the 45 days and then the 180 days. That's going to be relevant. Can you recap that briefly as well? Yeah, two really key components. The IRS loves to keep as much control over information flow in the process as they can. So to do that, um, all of this is the result of a court case, Starker versus the commissioner that lasted about 30 years. Now, this guy sold a piece of property, a large piece of property, left the money with the buyer and said, over the course of time, I'm going to have you buy other properties for me. That was kind of the simple structure of it. He said he did a 1031 exchange. The IRS said, no, you didn't. And they fought for 30 years and finally he won. But out of that, an upset and corrupt IRS <laughs> decided to put together some rules because they have to let us do it, but they don't have to make it easy. And the two most critical rules um, that will trip people up are that you only have, first of all, it starts with the closing of your sale. So as opposed to any other real estate transaction you're used to thinking of, a 1031 exchange starts with the sale and ends with the purchase. From the date of that sale, you only have 45 days to identify your potential replacements. And you have a total of 180 days to close on your replacements. So think about that time frame. That starts to really make people nervous, obviously, for a good reason. Now, you've got to use a qualified intermediary, which is the kind of thing that we do to process those things. And there's some reinvestment requirements. But for purposes of where we're going today in the discussion, it's that order of sale followed by purchase that's key and the 45 and 180 days, because you cannot take title to your new property until your old property closes. It's gotta be sale followed by purchase. Secondly, you can't exchange into improvements on property you already own. So if you want to buy a lot, you can do that, but only the value of that lot is what's going to count towards your 1031. You can't then later do anything with that because you already own it. And so that's how those two time frames can really constrain people who are wanting to do something creatively. Gotcha. So today we're talking about construction 1031 exchanges. Can you, uh, you know, I guess we'll start high level and then drill down into that. Sure. Yeah, actually, why don't we, let's, let's back it up one step even further. And we're going to create a framework for this, that what these actually all are is a form of a reverse exchange. 
Now, of course, anytime I start talking about that, people say, okay, Dave, you just told me that I can't buy till after <laughs> I sell, but now you're telling me I can reverse it. Well, sort of. You cannot take title to your new property before you sell. But there is a thing called a reverse exchange that actually has a safe harbor from the IRS. By the way, it's revenue procedure for all of you who are tax nerds out there, 2000-37. Read it late at night and you'll never have a sleepless night as long as you live. It'll put you to sleep. But that is the framework for the modern 1030 reverse exchange. And interestingly enough, Chris, as an aside, the whole background of this comes from a sale of pregnant cattle where the payment for the cattle was going to be the unborn calves they were carrying. Huh. I never knew that. If you can actually tell me how that worked, I'll <laughs> buy you a donut. Because <laughs> I don't have, but it was Rutherford versus the commissioner way back when. Yeah. And so they used to be called Rutherford exchanges, if there's anybody out there old enough to, to remember that. But the premise is that while you can't take title to your new property, you can control it. So what happens if you find, just find your new property, but your old property hasn't closed? You're selling a $500,000 eight plex and you're looking around for things and you find the perfect $500,000 replacement. Well, you can't buy it, but you can't let it go. And we both know what's happening in this market. Mm -hmm. If you don't get it under contract, you're gonna lose it. So you get it under contract, but all of a sudden you realize you're not gonna, you're gonna have to close on it before you close your sale. And you can't do that if you want a 1031. So in the reverse exchange, we as the qualified intermediary form a special purpose entity that is a single member LLC. And that LLC is going to take title to that new property. Now the client is not a member of the LLC. Only the qualified intermediary is a member of the LLC. So did the client buy the property first? No, the QI did. But the client is going to control the property. And the way in which they control the property is that the client provides the financing. So the client is actually lending money, whether it's all of the money or a down payment, along with securing um, the first loan on the property, but the loan itself is made to the QI. So the money is lent to the QI, the client lends the money to the QI. So there is a secured mortgage. So the client's in control that way. Secondly, the client has an option to purchase that property. Why is that important? Because as soon as they sell their old property, they're going to start a 1031 exchange. What do they want to buy? That property is sitting over there. So the property is available to them. They have control over the property because it cannot be sold. And then lastly, depending on the nature of the, whether it, how much work is going to be done, 
they either get a triple net lease to use the property with the rights to sublease it, or we enter into a construction management agreement with them. And we'll talk about how that's gonna work in just a moment. But with the triple net lease, let's say they found a, uh, a Walgreens commercial property that they wanted to buy, but they can't. So we would take title to that property and we would lease it to them, giving them the rights to lease it to Walgreens. So who's making all the money off of it? They are. Who's in control of it? They are. Who has the option to buy it? They do. Who owns it? We do. And interestingly enough, it's funny how this works, but the amount that we have to pay them for the mortgage seems to always equal exactly the amount that they have to pay us for a lease on that property. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. (laughs) Go figure. So that's the premise of a reverse exchange. If you have to buy your new property first. Now, let's start to go down that slippery slope. What if it's a property that you're purchasing for much less, but it needs substantial improvements? I'm selling a property for 500,000 and I want to buy this property for 200,000 that needs $300,000 in work. Well, you could buy the property, but you sold for five, you bought for two. So if you wanted to complete your 1031 exchange satisfactorily, you would either have to buy another piece of real estate or you would end up paying some tax because the requirement on the 1031 is that you purchase at least as much as you sell. Mm -hmm. So you sold for five, you bought for two. That doesn't work. But if we started a reverse exchange and we took title to that new property, then you as the leaseholder or construction manager could improve it for us. And once you put $300,000 of improvements into it, what's that property worth? Well, it was $200,000 to buy it, $300,000 to improve it. Oh my gosh, it's a $500,000 piece of property. And now you could take title to it and that satisfies the 1031 exchange. I mean, how awesome is that? Yeah. These kinds of value add plays are really common because when you factor the cost of reverse exchange, five to $10,000, that's nothing compared to the pop that you get mm-hmm. from the value add because that $200,000 piece of property, by the time you add 300,000 in a hard improvement cost is pre- is not going to be worth 500. It's probably going to be worth six or seven or $800,000. Mm-hmm. And so what you just did with your 1031 is not just defer the tax. You took a $500,000 property and turned it into an $800,000 property for the cost of a reverse exchange. Exactly right. Pretty yeah. powerful. Yeah. Now there's two ways that that financing can happen. You could bring it in from the outside or if your sale has already happened, remember you've got the 45 days and 180 days to close, you would simply identify your new property, that address, 
but we can use your exchange proteins. So if you own that old property for cash, you can actually do this whole thing without coming out of pocket one penny. As long as you can get your old property closed and you've got enough time left in that 180 day period to get the improvements done that you need. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It does. How, how often do people get hung up on, you know, that back end stuff, getting those improvements done? Any of us who have, you know, done these construction loans, you know, gut rehabs, whatever, we, we know how construction can go, right? Like, are there any best practices, exceptions, any, anything that would kind of make that part go smoother? Yeah, this is how this is how the watchers today know that you and I have lived it, because I got gray hair and you got no hair, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's what that's what caused it, right? <laughs> These kind of things. When you're when you're dealing with improvement exchanges, it's really not very problematic, because all that matters is that you get to that point. So let's stay with our example of the five hundred thousand. Now, if you bought. We bought the property for 200 and let's say you only got 250,000 into it and you're approaching your 180 days. You could simply take title to it without completing it because the IRS does not care what state the property is in. They simply care that you can document the cost of that property. So you would take title to that property then at $450,000. Well, now you sold for 500 and you bought for 450. You pay tax on the difference and that's all. You would still shelter all of the rest of your tax. So if there's a lot of gain in that property, no problem. I'm willing to pay a little bit of tax because of these incredible savings on the backside. So with improvement exchanges, very, very easy to manage. Where it becomes problematic is on this third level, which is actually the main topic for today, construction exchanges. So we dealt with the type of reverse where you simply find your new property first. We dealt with the type of reverse where the replacement property is less expensive, but needs improvement. That's what we call an improvement exchange. Now let's talk about the kind of reverse exchange where what you want to purchase doesn't even exist. You want to buy a lot, no problem. It's the same principle. The QI is going to take title to the lot. Now the client lends the money to buy the lot. So the client is secured, the client has control, the client's in charge. They don't own the lot, we do. This is where the rubber hits the road because you and I both know how hard it is to get construction on anything done in 180 days. It just, builders will promise it all day long. Builders never hit it all day long. It is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned the construction management agreement a second ago. Uh, let's go ahead and recap that and, and dive into that a little bit. 
Right. So the QI owns a lot. And I'm in St. Petersburg, Florida. My corporate office is in Denver. And the lot is in Sevierville, Tennessee. I got no interest. Dude, it's 55 degrees here in Florida and I'm dying. I've got no interest in going to Tennessee right now to look at a lot. Much less do I know what to build on it. So that's why the construction management is so important because we want the client to be totally in charge of what they're building, making all the decisions. But because we're the owner of the lot, who is actually doing it? We are using our manager. And so that's what keeps that separation that the IRS gives us the safe harbor for. Now, the safe harbor for reverse exchanges is only 180 days. You have 180 days from the day that we take title to the new property to complete your purchase of it. That since it doesn't matter when you sell your old property, we only have 180 days from when we take title to the new property. So you think about that time frame, there's almost always 60 or 90 days of architecture, permitting, infrastructure, mm -hmm. all of that stuff takes so much time and yet expends relatively little amounts of money. So you're already three months into the process and now you're having to dump money left and right to try to get it to the value that you need to mm -hmm. within that 180 days. That's the real problem with construction exchanges. Now it can be done and it is done, but I always tell my clients, it's like, make your builder pinky swear, would you? Mm -hmm. And have a backup position because all it takes is one hurricane, a pandemic, a forest fire. I mean, a bad day at the office for his workers. And all of a sudden, that's not going to take 180 days. It's going to take another two months. Mm -hmm. And you don't have that option. Because uh, you know, like you and I were saying, there's no whoops when you're doing these kind of things. Yeah. The IRS will not forgive you. So it's got to be done. But just like the improvement exchanges, the property does not have to be complete when you take title to it. It just has to be worth enough. And by that, I mean in actual expenditures, not in fair market value. Gotcha. It simply has to be worth enough to absorb your 1031 exchange. So hypothetically- so that's yeah, yeah. So hypothetically, if in this example with the $500,000, if that uh, last evaluation falls short by $100,000 or so, can, is that considered boot, you know, nice and clean and it can say go into a DST or are there some other technicalities around that? Yeah, well, it's, it would be considered boot and actually, that's a great point, because if one of the things that they do identify a backup property or properties, mm -hmm. could be real estate, could be a DST, that would be, a, typically a DST is going to be more user-friendly because those have a longer shelf life. You know, 
something in real estate goes on the market today, it's gone tomorrow. A DST, you may have what, 30 to 120 days, mm-hmm. maybe-ish, Yeah, that kind of thing. So if you name a backup DST and we get to the end of the reverse period and you've we bought the lot for 100,000 and we've put 300,000 into it. Now those are demonstrated expenses. So it's very easy to figure. So you then take title to that unfinished building at a price of $400,000. And then you would simply have a private agreement with your builder to complete the process. Your 1031 on that side is done at that point. And then you would either have that $100,000 in boot and pay tax on it, or I love your idea, use the $100,000 to go buy a DST that's already on your property list. And now you've sheltered all $500,000. Yeah. That works together beautifully, yeah. Very cool. Uh, so what are you seeing as far as folks getting this done in the market or maybe what else are you seeing in the market right now? As far as construction exchanges and those kinds of things? Yeah, maybe we'll start there and, and broaden out. Well, it's always interesting. New market has its own fingerprint ID, but every market follows the exact same trends. And unfortunately, uh, I, I wish I could remember who said this, but youth, maybe it was WC Fields, youth is wasted on the young. Yeah, yeah. And so unfortunately, the same thing with real estate cycles, right? Yeah. Once we get old enough, we realize what the cycle is. We go, if I would have only known this 30 years ago, mm-hmm. could have taken advantage of it. After the crash in 08, the cherry picking, the cream off the top, were the short sale properties, foreclosure properties, where the banks were trying to get them off their books for pennies on the dollar. And then it became fix and flips. But at some point in time, when we're talking about new construction, there is a shift where the dollar per square foot cost stops being cheaper to buy existing and becomes cheaper to buy new. And we are definitely at that point. I'm looking at, although they're trying to catch up with building costs, but I'm looking at properties that are already existing. I'm going, really $170, $180 a foot for a single family home? I can build it new for $120 a foot. So the shift becomes at late in a market into new construction. So to sell your existing asset at $160 a square foot and use construction exchanges to purchase a new asset for $100 a foot. The arbitrage of the difference, Mm -hmm. that's a powerful play. So not only are you saving deferred tax, you're investing that into something where in the exact same square footage, you're already making $60 a square foot Mm -hmm. just by buying it. That's where the market's at right now. So we're starting to see a lot of clients move into new construction. And we're also seeing a lot of clients who uh, thought they were going to have to bag groceries at the Kroger for the rest of their lives in 2008 Mm -hmm. saying, Dave, I've recovered and I'm out. (laughs) I want to sell. I just want to take my money and run. The problem is though, Chris, you and I know 
If they do that, they're gonna have a heap of tax and depreciation recapture on the table. Mm -hmm. So what they're starting to do, our council, is position yourself into properties that you may want to use as vacation rentals for the long haul, because everybody wants to own a vacation home. Well, buy the vacation home using a 1031 exchange as an investment property, you've got your lifetime vacation property and you've got a source of income. Or a twist on that is now in the market, sell your multifamily property because my gosh, those things are hotter than a pistol. Yeah. Sell your multifamily property and go buy a really, really nice house that you put a renter in for a while, but it's a nice enough house that you might like to live in it. And in a year or two, again, using the safe harbors given to us from the IRS, mm -hmm. convert that property into your primary residence. And that's your retirement home. Now, when you do that, simply changing the use does not trigger the tax. So it's like the mantra that we have in the industry, which is the four Ds. Have you ever heard of them? Dot, defer, 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 oh. die. Yeah. That's the 1031 mantra. Because yeah. as long as you never sell that property, you'll never pay the tax. Yeah. As long as anytime you sell the property and do a 1031 exchange, you'll continue to defer the tax. And as of right now, if you die owning that property, your heirs get it at what's called a step up in basis mm -hmm. and the tax goes away. So what a motivation to sell your, when you're in Ohio and you've got a snow shovel in your garage, to sell your duplex up there and go buy something on the beach in St. Pete Beach mm -hmm. as an investment. And a couple of years later, sell your house in Ohio and move into the house on St. Pete Beach. Yeah. and hold a garage sale just for the snow shovel. Come on down. <laughs> so that's a way to keep that tax captive. Mm -hmm. The other big thing that people even forget about there is that when they sell their primary residence in Ohio, if they're married, the first $500,000 in profit is going to be tax-free. So all of the investment gain stays tax deferred and they start off their retirement with a bunch of tax-free dollars mm -hmm. in their pocket for the primary residence sale. We're seeing it all over the place starting to happen because people are wanting to position out. Mm -hmm. The other twist, Chris, would be exactly what you, what you do, and that's positioning those investment assets from active where I've got to manage it and shovel the snow into something passive like a ticker or a DST. And it's just, uh, what's the term we call? Mailbox money. Yeah. Right? Just comes in the mail. Yeah, pretty so sweet. that's kind of where I'm seeing the market now. It's mature. And those are the marks of a mature market. Mm -hmm. So as far as the, the client sentiment goes regarding uh, going into 2021, what are you hearing and, and what types of are there any differences in asset classes people are looking for anything different from the previous year? 
oh man, where well, I'm looking around for my great Karnak hat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it with me. Um, so what you're going to get is just Dave's world, <laughs> which is somewhat dysfunctional, but always fun. Um, what I'm hearing, everybody still wants the unicorn of the multifamily. Hmm. That's undervalued. Everybody still wants that. Here's my take on that though. And I'm a contrarian. So I look for ideals. When you hear all the guys in government talk about things like vaccines and herd immunity, those are all just collective processes that work through an entire population to permeate it. I think there's also a thing called herd memory that is going to rear its head. Herd memory says that I need to be scared of people. And I just don't think we're going to forget that very quickly. So sectors that depend on large groups or close quarters of people, I wonder if those aren't gonna take a hit. High density multifamily, retail shopping, especially non-essential mom and pop retail type stuff. Because I have noticed that I have not cut on my trips to Home Depot. I'm still doing it for whatever reason. <laughs> but I'm avoiding a small restaurant. Or, so I think the commercial retail sector is going to suffer for a while. I think multifamily is going to suffer because of the herd memory. Mm -hmm. And here's the other side of that. We have heard from the new administration coming in very clearly that they want to make home ownership a priority. So that means two things. Number one, they're going to incentivize that with dollars, whether it's a tax credit, grants, or whatever. They're going to be putting money so that people can buy their homes. So that's going to increase pressure on single family homes. Mm -hmm. But secondly, what was my second point on that? Part of the pressure is also means that there's going to be pressure on inventory because we've gone through the market and who owns thousands and thousands and thousands of single family rentals. It's a lot of these private equity groups as well as you and I. So where is the inventory gonna come from where they could use their dollars from the government to buy? It's gonna come from you and me. And you and I are gonna sit down and have a cup of coffee and say, Dave, Chris, I'm not interested in selling at this price. What shall we charge? So. I personally am looking more towards single family myself because I think it's the sure bet because it avoids herd immunity. And I think it's going to take advantage of that bump from a new administration encouraging ownership. Mm -hmm. I had a very similar conversation just recently uh, about that dynamic. And uh, to take it up one more layer, you know, there's, it, it came out of uh, the cap rate pressure that we're seeing right now. Um, this conversation was specifically talking about multifamily, but there's a lot of folks doing deals 
that, you know, would have been very uncomfortable, you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, the margins are a lot smaller and they're cutting things, you know, a little bit closer these days. Um, so not only are we going to have uh, single family homes kind of taking away, well, theoretically taking away from that demand a bit, but also, you know, what's going to happen to the cost of money by the time these deals go full cycle, um, it, it might it might change the calculations. And I don't know that a lot of people are factoring that in. So, well, that's um, a great point. That's absolutely cost of money is a crazy factor that is going to play because if we go into an inflationary mode, mm-hmm. the safest place to battle inflation is fixed goods, large durable commodities. So again, that's more pressure to buy that house and then take out the long 30 year low interest loan because you're borrowing and you're going to pay it back over time in a fraction of that because of inflation. That reminds me of a great book. Um, If I can make a recommendation, this is great for people and you'll love it. It's called Whatever Happened, Whatever Happened to Penny Candy. You know, like one cent penny candy. Think about all those things that are in the grocery store, the little candy machines, cup ball machines. Mm-hmm. You won't remember this because you're way too young. <laughs> it used to be a penny. Now, what are they, a buck? Something, so yeah. it's a primer on inflation. What happened to penny or to candy that costs a penny? And it's written in a very story like manner. But it is probably the best primer on velocity of money and inflation that I've ever read. So going into this time coming up, be a real good thing to, to, to read. Yeah. So I think we're going to wrap up here. I think, Dave, you and I could talk all day about this stuff. So uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell folks how they can find you and, and learn more? Yeah, absolutely. We've created an entire education portal just for the investor who wants to explore all the strategies and avenues of the 1031 exchange, go to the 1031investor.com. Beautiful. You can catch me there. All right. Awesome. Thanks again, Dave. This was fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of Skyline Views with Chris Mills. We hope you found this valuable and useful. Feel free to share it with friends or family that could benefit as well. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss anything. We really appreciate it. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us through thehaneycompany.com. See you next time. The information provided in this episode is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. Skyline Views, The Haney Company, their employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are advised to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant for the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Christopher Mills is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisor representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. 
Neither Coastal Equities Incorporated nor Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated is affiliated with Skyline Views or the Haney Company. Advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, a U.S. SEC registered investment advisor, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated. Member FINRA SIPC, 1201 North Orange Street, Suite 729, Wilmington, Delaware, 19801.